And I had this existential moment where I was just like, I just helped create history. <laughs> like of all the things I've done, I've been working in this business for 20 years. I've elected United States senators. I've been part of presidential campaigns. I've done some crazy shit. This is by far one of my crowning achievements because forever people are gonna look to that question as the moment when a government official on the record said, we're not alone. Welcome to the Creative Brief Podcast, the show where we talk about how you can leverage creativity as your competitive advantage. Today is a special episode. I'm talking to Phil Vangelakos, managing partner at Push Digital Group and a man that I get to work with every day. Phil navigates the landscape of campaign politics like no one I've ever seen. He's a true integrator who has sharpened his creative skills to a razor's edge. I ask him how he navigates the dynamics of campaigns and candidates and the creatives that he works with on a daily basis to bring their visions to life. Oh, and we even touch on a way that his personal curiosities have somehow found their way into national discussions. If you're a creative visionary, I think you'll be fascinated to hear about how an integrator's mind works. There are a lot of lessons to learn from this conversation with Phil, so let's just jump into it. I'm Brian Athey, and this is The Creative Brief. What's up, Phil? Thanks for joining me, man. How are you, Brian? Uh, I feel weird a little bit because I talk to you uh, as often as I do, and this is in a, uh, a podcast setting. And I feel like, you know, we'll have some ground to cover today that we haven't talked about before, but I would be remiss if we didn't start with the big news from last night. So, Phil, uh, we are in politics, and last night was the Iowa caucuses. Um, a handy, I think, less than five minute uh, decision was made where Donald Trump won outright. Uh, what are What is yeah. your read on last night? What was going on? I mean, there's the things I want to say, but professionally probably can't say. Mm -hmm. um, it took like CNN 30 minutes total to grant their uh, winning badge to Donald Trump. I mean, there's really not a primary here. No. It's like, this is a coronation, you know? It does feel like that is the big takeaway from last night. There was nobody that finished within... 30 points of them. Is that right? Yeah, it's actually unprecedented. We've never seen a an Iowa caucus uh, with anybody win with a margin more than 12%. So this is uh, unprecedented. It's a it's it really is a, an incredible victory for the Trump team. But, you know, this is what I'll say about Donald Trump. And I can't get too deep into it, obviously, because of professional reasons. But, you know, the guy had a um, a primetime television show for like 10 years. They just don't give those away. They're worth money. When you, when you, <laughs> when you spend that much time on television and you, you're a hit, like he had a number one television yeah, a legit show. Hit. Um, when you have that much time on television in people's living rooms for as long as he did. And even prior to that, he was kind of like a, he was a, a household name. I mean, how many, I was listening to the Nelly's uh, ride with me the other day. I know what you're saying. <laughs> and he's, you know, you know what I'm saying? And he's like, Donald Trump, let me Donald in. Donald Trump, let me in. Uh... Right? And like, he's, even before he was president, the guy was yeah. famous. And one of the things that you learn in 
just political advertising is that the number one indicator of vote choice is, is party ID. But in a primary caucus, there's no party ID. Everybody's a Republican. So the second indicator of vote choice is name ID. It's who people know the most. Well, like I said, 10 years with a n- number one primetime hit TV show is going to give it to you. Plus, that's plus a handful of years of campaigning, four years as president, and still... You know. That's right. I mean, until Will Smith smacked Chris Rock, if he wanted to run for president, like, he could. Because his likability was high and his name ID was high. He's a household name. He saved the world from fucking aliens. <laughs> like, the guy he wanted to be president prior to that moment could have run. Will Smith, the Welcome to Earth campaign. Welcome to Earth. <laughs> well, dude, I want to I want to set you up just a little bit because, uh, like I told you before we started, this is this is a creative podcast, and I think that I've got a lot of uh, creatives and designers and entrepreneurs that listen. Um, but I, I'm creative as that's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's the setup right here. Don't step on my lead. What I wanted to say is that Phil Vangelakos is the managing partner of one of the largest political digital multimedia firms in the country, fundraising, advertising, uh, all manner of creative practice goes on within our production team. And and Phil manages that whole spectrum and all the dynamics of give or take 70-ish people on a daily basis. The amount of creativity that I've seen him exhibit in the room uh, is really second to none. And I think that that's, that's where uh, you have so much to offer an audience of creatives is that Creatives, creativity is not just a sit at a computer working in Photoshop or on Figma exercise. Right. It is an in the room right. exercise that you've somehow nav- figured out how to navigate it dozens of different directions at a time. So if you could just kind of lay out, Phil, like what a typical day looks like for you and how often the dreaded phone call and meeting happens for you and how you are able to sustain the level of effort that it takes to manage all these things at once and still find some semblance of creativity. You know, you I think you, you, you might've been the person who told me this, or maybe I told you this in, in just thinking about how you operate, but I think it applies to everybody who's kind of creative. Uh, productivity saps creativity and creativity saps productivity. Wow. And so you can't have it both ways. There's a, there's a balance here. And in my time as the managing partner of a firm like this one, I can honestly say that my creativity has, has, has diminished. Because of the day to day, you think? That's right. That's right. You get stuck on, on 16. You saw, you saw my schedule to book this thing. (laughs) Like, I'm on conference call, the conference call all day long. And so my ability to come up with great creative content or creative strategies is only as powerful as the free time I'm able to give myself. And I think that goes for any creative. Like if you don't have the space, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the, the, there's the, there's talk about the muse, you know, you don't, you don't talk about And 
the muse in, in creativity doesn't show up on an iCal. You can't schedule that. Yeah. And so you got to have time for it to appear. You got to have time for it to manifest itself. And, you know, you're stuck on, you know, 10 to 15 Zooms a day. You have personnel meetings, you have HR meetings, you have finance meetings. You can say goodbye to your creativity. You would think. That being said, it, I think it makes my creativity actually all the more impressive. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> because, because I can, I, I've, I, and I think it's, a, I don't know what it, how I did it, but I can move in it from a, like a, a standardized finance meeting or leadership meeting where we're talking about processes and procedure, things that are very non-creative. And then you get me in front of a whiteboard and all of a sudden the magic comes back. Like as soon as I get a dry erase pen in my hands and I have an audience, it's like I'm a performer again. And that's, that, that's, it's the muscle memory, you know, like, I was, I was watching something about, I was watching the show Louder Milk on Netflix. Oh, I hadn't seen that one. And it's all about these drunks who go to, who go to AA meetings. <laughs> yeah. And they all are talking about their triggers, about the triggers that make them drink. Well, I noticed there are triggers that make me creative. Tell me more of that. Like, you know, you know well, what I'm talking about? Tell me more about that. Yeah, I think I do. Well, if like the whiteboard that I was just talking about. If I get a dry erase pen and a whiteboard and I have an audience, all of a sudden it's like the music starts playing and I'm able to come up with things. It's a trick. It's a, it's a muscle memory inside me that goes, okay, it's time to be creative. Well, you've talked to me before that you're a bit of an introvert. And I, I think that, that could very well be just bullshit talking. That's like setting low expectations yeah. so you can outperform no, them. No, no, but no. here's, here's speaking of triggers. Here's what I've observed about you. You will come off of a string of six, seven, eight meetings in a row, hour-long meetings in a row. We're talking about end of the day, four o'clock, and you will walk into a conference room and you will sit down unprepared, un unbriefed. You won't know what's going on and problems will start popping up and then everybody will just kind of look at you and I'll say, Phil, what do you think? And from somewhere deep inside... You don't have an answer. You might not have an answer ready. You might not have thought about it all the way through, but it just kind of happens. And you are able to articulate it in a way that is not just clear and doesn't just cut through all the noise, but it also like kind of gets everybody hyped up and ready to go take action. It's like, oh, this is a this is the right solution. Where if you are really that self-described introvert, like where does that reflex come from? How when the spotlight turns on you, you don't shrink back that's like where you come alive how does that happen i okay so i am an introvert in the sense that what recharges me is being by myself it's reading it's listening to music it's not being social what recharges me is is being a little bit of a recluse mm -hmm. i noticed probably early high school that if i was going to ever have friends <laughs> If I was ever going to make money, if I was ever going to get laid, I was going to have to come out of that shell that I have a gift of cogent thinking and, and communication. 
and that if there was ever, whether I like it or not, this was going to be my ticket. So I assumed the role Monday through Friday, nine o'clock to whenever in the afternoon when I quit as an extrovert. But if you ask my wife, when I get home, like I'm quiet, (laughs) I don't say a fucking word. Like I, it's hard to believe. Yeah, man. It's It's hard to believe. Um, but you know, my favorite days are on a, you know, a, a rainy Saturday when all the excuses to stay inside, maybe even stay in bed and just open up a book and read. Those are my, those are my best moments. And actually they're the moments when, when the muse manifests itself, when the creative ideas, when the spark of creativity in me happens the most, everything else is more of a manifestation of, okay, nobody else in here has high ideas. We've got things to do. Let's, let's spur some conversation. Let's talk about what we know. And I think with problem solving and strategy in particular, if you want to be creative with thinking about strategy, you have to have like what the foundation is. What's the, what's the initial problem? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Sometimes just stating the problem allows a solution to appear to yourself. Actually, I wanted to talk to you about this. Have you heard that exercise before? Uh, I was just reading about it over the weekend. And it is, if you're trying to solve a problem, describe how you can make it worse. Have you heard about yeah, that before? Yeah, exactly. You heard about that before? Like, State, you know, uh, stating the problem in my, in, in my opinion, it's like the starting point. You get a lot of people in those types of conversations who they want, they want to give input for one, you know, personal reason or another, they're insecure. They've, they want to show somebody they're smart. They've, you know, they, they're trying to stick out, but if everybody doesn't know the problem you're actually trying to solve for, what you get are solutions that don't fit the problem itself. And I notice in order just to spur conversation, it's like here, just putting it on a whiteboard, letting everybody see this is the issue. Sometimes starts the conversation off when everybody's like what you said, when everybody's quiet and they have, you know, no solutions and everybody's looking to you. My solution is always let's talk about what the problem actually is, because if as long as we define the problem, we talk, we talk through what we're trying to solve for at least then we're not all going in different directions. At least then we're all headed in something, someplace. Similar. You have this natural inclination to do that. That is, is really, really unique. And I feel like it might just be because of the economy that this industry demands. You know, you've been, how long have you been in politics? Um, I'm 40. And so I started when I was 20. So this will be my 20th year. Five cycles in the industry. Yeah. Five cycles. Yeah. That's that's yeah, five cycles. That's five presidential cycles. So I, I think if you could, we talk about this on a regular basis, but I want to set up something that makes this industry very unique is that you don't have time or resources often to solve a problem to the level that you need to, and you've just got to kind of make it happen. And as related to that, you know, in the room, kind of to paint a picture, you're often sitting in a circle after traveling for a day on an early morning flight, 
eating crap food at an airport or at a drive-thru on the way, you are often sat down in a meeting full of peers, uh, experts in, you know, data modeling, experts in polling and, and state yes. demographics, expert, you know, all these inputs, communications folks and fundraising folks. A lot of right? gurus. And you don't have time to bullshit. And a lot of the times, like whatever you came in thinking you were going to talk about might've changed while you were on the plane. Talk about this industry different from every other when there is a problem and the expectations of solving that problem with creativity, not over the course of several weeks or months, but in the moment and how you kind of deploy a team to do that. One of the most fulfilling parts of this industry is collaboration. Mm -hmm. Everybody is an expert in something. Yep. And everybody has their own niche and their own specialty. There are very few generalists in professional campaign politics. And, you know, I have my specialties. My specialties are in digital and creative media buying. And I know that at least in my universe, I don't know how to call it, what, it, what I would call it. It's the, it's the around the table mm -hmm. of how everybody is going to execute and deploy their specialty for it to solve the problem. It's always so cool to me. And, I, and I, it's caused me to have like a, an obsession with specialists or experts. Mm -hmm. Like the other day I got my lawn, um, my lawn, not just, it was landscaped, like, full, like a full, fully landscaped, you know, manicured lawn. And I was talking to the guy who did my lawn and why he did one bush and one tree the way he did it. And I was, I was blown away by his knowledge and his expertise. And I, I just find myself being enthralled with people who are experts. And I think it's because of the industry I work in. Because if you have like a direct mail guy or a pollster, like they know they're, they're a wizard in their craft. And so when you talk to somebody who really knows and cares about the thing that they do well, um, and, and there's mutual respect, Typically, you know, it's pretty smooth. Where it doesn't go smooth in this industry is where you have a candidate or a principal who believes they're the expert at everything. Because clearly they're not. You know, they got rich doing business. They got rich doing something that's not what you do. And they bring their confidence from their industry into something that's so niche. I don't know many other political consultants. I'm like the only, like in my personal life among friends, like I don't have many political consultant friends. Sure. There's not a whole lot of us. Right. And so like, I, I, I can tell you that when a candidate comes to bear with their uh, pseudo expertise in an area they know nothing about, it gets a little frustrating and can throw a monkey wrench in the, in the, the harmony of experts. Do you think that's, because there is something to the harmony of experts that allows a project to go really smoothly. It's like a heist. Yeah. Do you think, you know, you, like, 
you got the guy on the computer, you got the explosives yeah. expert, you got everybody <laughs> who does their piece in a heist. And if they do it correctly, they the, like the end of the movie is really good. Uh, I, I, the candidate is not the expert. That's why they hired me. You don't see Danny Ocean trying to do all the acrobatics. He's in the casino smoking cigarettes. That's right. That's right. So do you think it's because of the stakes of the situation? Do you think that, do you think it's a, I mean, obviously there's some vanity and narcissism and, and politics amongst, it's amongst wild. candidates, but do you think it's because of the, the high stakes of the situation that folks are not always trusting of the experts that they hire? No, it is. is it? It's they're the bride. I just yeah. thought of it. Like the candidate is the bride. And this is, this is their this is wedding. Their day. They've been dreaming about this their entire life. This is their, this is their big day. And they've invested so much in it. They've it like personally, financially, reputationally. And because the stakes are so high on the wedding day, they're a little bit of a bridezilla. And you see it from candidate to candidate. It's going to happen. Now, every once in a while, you get a really cool candidate who's just like, dude, you're in charge. You tell me what to do. And typically those candidates win and they win yeah. big. But it's sometimes you can't help yourself because it's your special day. It's your special thing. And there's so much invested into it that you're going you're gonna to have um, opinions that don't line up with reality. Well, I think that that's, that's a really interesting analogy because we have spent so much time building these like small, specialized, performance-driven teams, folks that are very specifically acute and aware of how fundraising works, very specifically aware right. of how persuasion advertising works, very, very acutely aware of list and data management and rev shares and rentals. It's like, we are no longer this team of generalists. We are specialists, campaign consult consultants and strategists, specialist fundraisers, specialist uh, uh, advertisers. But what is it? We've got this whole build to win philosophy. What does it look like for a candidate when all that comes together? Like, what does it look like when they give us the trust? What does it look like when they can count on us to deliver? And, and what is it that we're going to deliver for them? It, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's a symphony. There's, there's, when everyone's singing the same song and, and playing their own part within that song, it's beautiful. And there's a lot of camaraderie between the different, the different players and it gets done faster. It gets done cheaper. The margins of, of victory are bigger. Um, but I famously have butt heads with people on campaigns. I they have call it infamously. <laughs> yes. I think I told you the other day that there are going to be two types of people <laughs> at, like, at my retirement party. They're going to be the people who are like, Phil is the most gregarious guy I've ever known. He's so funny. He has so many jokes. And then there are going to be people who are like, Phil has serious anger management issues. And they're both going to be right. They're both going to be 100% correct because – one of the things that hurts me the most is when people decide to ruin the harmony of a campaign. I can't 
I can't describe it. You'd have to you'd have to just do it to actually believe me. But going doing a campaign with somebody, it's like it's like going to war. Like the bond between you and that person, you never forget that election cycle. You never forget that campaign. And when you decide to screw up the harmony and the beauty and the music of a really good campaign, you're you're taking away my joy, and I'm going to let you know it. And I, I can't I can't help but be upset when the that that rhythm of everyone doing their job correctly and efficiently is ruined. Now, if it's a candidate, I'm going to withhold my opinion. That's this is their race. If they want to screw it up, if they want to do crazy shit, they want to say crazy shit. That's on them. But if it's a another consultant or a campaign staff member, I'm going to pull you aside. I'm going to tell you something because this is um, it's a it's a beautiful thing when it comes together. There is no better feeling than on election night. Election night is electric. It's like the high you get from winning a campaign. It's what keeps you coming back. Like there there there's some of us that make money in this industry. There's, there, there's a good, there's a good chunk of people that make a lot of money in politics, but I guarantee you what keeps them coming back is the victories. Because once you make that money, it's a lot easier to put it in the S and P and let it grow 7% every single year. It's a lot easier to buy a couple beach houses and be a landlord. There's a lot easier ways to make money. What keeps you coming back is the harmony and the music and the, and the beauty and the excitement of election night and that victory. And so you don't want to screw that up for anybody. You don't want to be the person who screws it up. You want to do your job efficiently. You want to bring to bear all of your creativity in a way that adds to the group, but doesn't subtract for your own self-interest. It's a, it's, it's a, you know, there's, nobody likes political consultants. We're scum of the earth. I I get it. But (laughs) There's honor among thieves here, and I, I can't stand yeah. the people who want to sap the beauty of, of what we It can be fun, right? No. It's, it, it doesn't it, have to be miserable. I think you said, yeah, I think, you, I think you said this on an all staff the other day. You were like, this is a tough industry. We don't have to contribute to it being miserable. We don't have to make it worse. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's why I, I try to start every Zoom meeting, every conference call, every in-person meeting with a smile on my face, with a joke to tell, because this this can be miserable. And there are a lot of people who, do you notice this, that they enjoy being miserable? They enjoy, like, it's, it's, it's a part of their persona to be an asshole. Yeah. I hate that. That's, that's not what, that's not why do you I ever, do this. Do you ever go, or you ever sit down in a hiring meeting and somebody sends you a resume and you're, and you know, you've got high hopes and then you go look at their accounts and it's just like sniping and griping and negative bullshit just in a big, in a big yeah. chain. And you're just like, I, I can't, I can't invite this into my life. You're, have you ever done that? Yeah. I, I'm more likely to hire the nerd. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the happy-go-lucky nerd. We got a lot of those at Push Digital. Yeah, dude, I love nerds. Um, <laughs> I'm a I nerd. love the nerds. <laughs> I love it. 
Um, because the nerds grow up to be the like healthy, normal people with no kind of normal in- interactions. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to surround myself with negative folks. There's enough negativity to go around. We don't need to be a part of it. Well, what, you know, uh, this will be a crazy election and it's certainly going to inspire some negativity, but it's also going to be one like we've never seen before in 2024. We've got crazy factors to, con- to deal with and contend with on our end. The economy is weird. And so people aren't donating money, uh, which means that politicians right. are going to wait longer to go up on their advertising, which means that it's more likely to be sensational to get eyes on it, which means it's more likely to be negative to keep the, keep the narrative from being anything uniting or positive. And we talk a lot about building brand early so that when something bad happens down the line, you can always point back to the positive narrative you've been weaving. But I just, that's right. I just wonder what kind of curveballs you're seeing. I mean, like they're aliens, man. They're like I just saw another video the other night. There's like a model on a plane flying back from. Have you seen this one? She's like flying from Peru, and she yeah. holds her phone out the window, and there's the same soft saucer that Fravor has seen, and that uh, uh, what's his name describes. Who is the guy that uh, yeah. Bob Lazar? The Bob Lazar described. It's like all the same craft. Like, um, you know, it's wild. There's some man. wild cards. There's some wild cards. There's, I mean, that's the kind of the beauty of politics is that every election cycle, it's like you hit a reset button and you get a new set of problems, a new set of candidates, a new set of economics. The whole landscape is different. And so your ability to be creative and problem solve and strategize is put to the test, right? If it was the same every single time, well, this would just be formulaic. I could be a dentist, right? Like you could do anything, like that's every other job. What's interesting about politics is that it's going to be different. And um, I, I, I used to play this video game, Civilization. And, I, you know, you, one of the cool things about playing this video game is that you have to conquer the world. But every time you start the game, the resources you have, the team you're playing with, the landscape you're playing on becomes different. Yeah. And that's the joy in this to me is like, Okay, give me a new challenge. I don't want it to be the same. I want UFOs to show up in the middle of this election cycle. And I want to be able to write statements for candidates and deploy creative about UFOs because that would just be new and different. It would be cool. It would be so cool. And it would um, be, I mean, you are Reddit Phil. You are the you are the you are the the internal source that how did that come yeah, about? Yeah. Can you can you share that story? Yeah, oh my God. yeah I can share the story. I, it's, I don't think she's going to be upset. But we, um, you know, I I follow UFOs. I always have. I love 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 the whole topic of UFOs and aliens. I've been a sci-fi nerd my entire life, and uh, Congress recently started to look into UFOs right? because there's a whistleblower out there, David Grush, who has made some extraordinary claims. He says that, you know, the United States government has multiple craft in its possession that we even have, you know, bodies of the so pilots. Say, yeah. And he did it under oath. So if he's lying, he goes to jail. And this is like a highly decorated combat veteran who is ranking within the intelligence service of the United States 
And so we have a just a logical problem. And that problem is if what he's saying is true, that's, that's crazy. crazy. And the American people have been lied to for many, But also many years. it seems like a lot of people have kind of followed this news and they're just like, eh. <laughs> We got inflation, we got TikTok, there's a bunch of shit happening that just consumes our lives. And and you know what? The sometimes conspiracies they allow themselves to um to sink in in a way where they become a foregone conclusion. So it's like, of course the CIA is covering up the Kennedy assassination. Of course they killed him. Of course they killed him. We don't know that, yeah. you know, but so anyway, David Grush appears before the oversight committee. We have several clients who sit on the oversight committee. And one of my clients, uh, I, one of, Nancy Mace, Nancy Mace was texting, asking, well, what should I ask him? Because she knew that like, I was really, into, I was watching. I took the, I took the day off. <laughs> yeah. I remember that. I sat in my underwear to watch a UFO hearing. And I, I got a big soda. Like it was like it was Christmas. It, it was, was a good day. Was yeah, it was a good day. And so she's texting me. And so I I I, te- I I text her back. I said, You need to ask if the United States government has the bodies. And sure enough, she asks the question. And he goes, Yeah, we have we have biologics. And That's the, that is the, the famous that was, was the line. It was the famous line from that from All that hearing, and I had this existential moment where I was just like, "I just helped create history." <laughs> like of all the things I've done, I've been working in this business for twenty years. I've elected United States senators. I've been part of presidential campaigns. I've done some crazy shit. This is by far one of my crowning achievements because forever, people are going to look to that question as the moment when a government official on the record said we're not alone. And it's just, it's why nobody else thought to ask the fucking question. I have no idea, but it is the question is, is, are are we alone? Is there something else out there? And he confirmed, yeah, we got something. And still I tell this story to my friends and family and they're like, okay, Phil, I'm like, it was all the fucking news. The New York times wrote about this. It's real. This is what I mean. It's like you, you would expect the reaction. Did you ever read, um, what AD after disclosure? Yes. AD, AD lays out like the sequence of events that would happen if a world power had to disclose that. Right. So you kind of have all this built up in your mind. They're going to close down the stock market. So there's not a run. They're going to, you know, make sure that grocery stores are stocked. They're going to do all these things. And the ensuing sort of realizations that come after that for world religions and world power systems and all this stuff. Yeah. It didn't, but instead everybody was just like, like looked up from their phone for a second and they were like, cool. Seems, seems like just another day in 2023. And then just went right back to scrolling. I know. It's okay, though. I mean, I think what it's going to take is everybody seeing something. You know, you're a graphic designer by, you know, by trade. And you, you know that the visual aspect of this stuff means a lot. And so people just talking about there being aliens isn't as good as people seeing aliens. Yeah. Which is why. 
And I think that'll be the difference. The, the, the difference That's why I was so excited about Miami the other day. <laughs> I, that stuff's wild because you were going to hear about that stuff. This is we kind of got alien fever mm-hmm. right now, and UFO fever in this country. In in a in the literature, they call it a uh, they call it a flap. So ufologists call it a flap uh, when there's a period of intense sightings and encounters and they happen in flaps and you can there's a there's a guy um john keel and jacques valet that talk about these flaps throughout history since basically the 1940s we're going through one right now people are seeing shit and you know i i I, i'm a full-time political consultant part-time ufologist sometime dj you know in my own time (laughs) Sometimes DJs, um, you know, but this is, this is just something that might come up. It's a, it's another aspect of culture right now. I think it's a cool aspect of culture. Let me, let me kind of flex my professional podcaster muscle here. Watch how I do this. All right. So we've talked about creativity. We've talked about tapping into something in the room. We've talked about UFOs and UAPs. (laughs) <laughs> Let's come all the way back to that muse that you talked about at the beginning. Yeah. What is that muse? Who? What is it? Who is it? How is it that in moments of quiet and solitude, while you're behind the turntables or while you're reading a book or while you're plopped on the couch and uh, right. over the weekend, recharging and decompressing, what is that voice that shows up and talks to you? I don't know, man. You know, when you're young, that voice is screaming. It's loud. And so, you know, I can see how young people get distracted and they pick up a lot of different hobbies and do a lot of different things because you can be good at a lot of things when you're young and you get a lot of inspiration when you're young. And as you get older, that voice, that muse gets quieter and quieter. It's, it gets softer. And it just, it eventually it's, you have to really listen for inspiration to do something cool. And I don't know what it is or where it comes from, but I've talked about this with other, other people. And it's, it's one of those things that I think is a a common shared human experience. And either you can ignore it in your life or you can embrace it. And when you embrace it, people are going to think you're crazy. You're eccentric. I mean, it's, you get shit for listening to the creative, the creative voices in your head. But I can name several instances in my life when in both good times and in bad, when I was listening, when I was being quiet and I was listening, that changed my life, that I ended up acting on the muse and it changed the course of my life forever. And I, I, that's why I make time now just to be quiet just to be quiet, to, to listen, to feed myself creative things, to be, to dive into things that uh, fulfill me, not 
you know, not pre not even professionally. It's like this, all, everything I do in this office, this is a means to an end. This is the means to an end for me feeling fulfilled, me being a whole person. And when I've listened to what's to that direction, it's never led me astray. It's had me do crazy things that people have been like, what are you thinking? But those things have made me who I am. And they've, it's always been positive, even when it looked crazy. I don't know that I, you know, I started a digital business in 2009 and everyone back then was like, what are you doing? Why aren't you going into TV production for political campaigns? Why are you going into uh, direct mail? And in my brain, and you couldn't, you couldn't have known it in 2009 because there was no advertise. There was not an advertising platform. No. There was, I mean, you could buy Google ads, right? right? Like, but it wasn't the same a as it is now. A handful of years in on YouTube and Facebook and all that kind I of stuff. I had to beg clients to spend $500 on Facebook. And I had to, you know, argue that, hey, Barack Obama just did this. Everybody's going to be doing it 10 years from now. It, everybody thought I was nuts building websites for candidates. But I couldn't have anticipated that, you know, candidates would then spend 10, 20, $30 million on digital advertising a decade later. And I had to go through hard times early on in order to be, you know, in in order to justify the, what the muse had given me, you know, you, you, you go through, moments of self-doubt where you're like, why am I doing this? Why is this, why am I putting up with this? Um, but it panned out. And I look at several instances in my life like that. And I'm just like, you know, I just need to get home. I need to put some, put some headphones on. I need to think about things that aren't distracting me from the calm and serenity that allows me to really listen to to whatever that is. And I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's something universal, if I'm tapping into a, a hive consciousness. I don't know if it's just my 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 own um, sort of, uh, you know, neurosis. <laughs> I don't know if I'm just fucking crazy. That's the, that's the hard but part about the muse, right? You yeah. don't know. And this is why I feel really hesitant to want to criticize creatives. Like it's a personal, personally, I, I, I don't like doing it. Like if everybody's shitting on Kanye West, I'm like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, I want to let the crazy just happen with a guy like that. Because you don't know what you're going to get. You might get, you might get a moment of brilliance out of it. And it enriches all of humanity when somebody does you- that. And I'm sure there are reasons to criticize the guy. I mean, I like, yeah. listen, you don't want to say stupid shit. But can right? you imagine the new album? Can you imagine what, what he's about to drop? I've heard a little bit of it and it's, it's fine. Are you kidding? Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's got a single out now um, from the new album and it comes out on the 19th. So in three days, I'm excited. I didn't realize. He samples the Backstreet Boys. It's fucking brilliant, dude. What song? And he's working with... It's called everybody. He samples everybody from the Backstreet Boys. You heard it here first, guys. He does, dude. And he's working with a couple of cool producers. A guy named Wax Motif, who's a a house a house yeah. DJ. He's got a couple tracks on the album, and it just looks 
I mean, he's going in a direction that looks really cool. And so, yes, is he crazy? Yeah. Does he say stupid shit? For sure. I've been there. Everybody's, everybody's gone off the deep end. But the people who never go off the deep end, the people who never listen to the muse, the people who never embrace the, 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 the voice in their own silence, never do anything great. Yeah. They live fucking mundane lives. Yeah. You've got me reading these books, uh, Secret Machines. Uh, I got through I, yeah. I got through Gods. Now I'm reading uh, Man. Yeah. And that's trippy. But it makes me think about, have you ever been out to like the desert or to like high up on a mountain? Or have you ever just been out in isolation yeah. and the stars at night come up? And most yeah. of your life, most of the time, you're in ambient light and there's street lights and there's, you know, you don't see the stars, but when you're out in a place where there's very little ambient light, you can see them and you realize that those stars are always there to tap into, but you've just got all this sort of haze and, and abstraction around those, around that scene. Like that's, <clears throat> that's what the muse is to me. It's, it's always remembering that like, if you can trust it, trust that it's there and relax enough quiet all the other voices enough and stop. I mean, even in a pressured situation, feeling like it's got to happen right now. No doubt. No doubt. I also noticed that I just don't get creativity from it. I also find my moments of great empathy come from the quiet moments. When I'm able to be quiet and think through my life, I end up feeling for people in a way that I wouldn't otherwise. And, you know, like I'll, I'll have a thought about a coworker or I'll have a thought about my wife or I'll have a thought about somebody. And it's just like something impresses me about what's going on in their world to reach out to them and to talk to them and to give them a good word, to give them uh, something they might need from me. And I don't know, there's nothing spiritual about this, but like in the, in the course of modern humanity, you can, you can lose your humanity in the course of modern life. You can be like, I'm not, I'm not what, what is human is to connect from human to human. Right. And so often we, for, we, we stop doing that because we're texting, we're, we're on our computers, we're watching TV, we're addicted to screens and we forget to be like, Hey babe, I love you so much. You're the most beautiful thing in the world. Like it's those sorts of moments that like, Sometimes I get from my quiet and I just wouldn't, I do, it just wouldn't happen otherwise. Well, you can see that translated into what we do in a lot of ways, because it is a, it is a bedrock philosophy that there is always a person behind that screen for every, for every video you cut, for every oh, ad yeah. you place, there's always a person on the other side of it. It's not just numbers and it's not just data and it's not just a graphic that looks cool or a video that's, you know, really epic. It's realizing that there is somebody on the other side of that, that we've got to talk to. That's right. I mean, the, ultimately the audience is audience sees through everything. Like one of my favorite things to say is like, if, if somebody's like, you didn't understand me, you don't know, you don't get what I'm talking about. I'm like, don't blame the audience. I'm the audience. <laughs> Like if you're not, if, if, if you're, if your thoughts and your love and your excitement for whatever you're doing isn't translated and the, it flies over the audience's head, that's on you. 
you fucked up. And the only way to stay in tune with the audience is to understand where they're coming from. It's to be empathetic, to have a real empathy for who they are and what they're doing. I, I was once told it's really hard for a good looking guy to be a great stand-up comedian. And it's because the audience loses the empathy for that stand-up comedian's jokes. But if you get a guy like Shane Gillis or Chris Rock or John Candy or Chris Farley, these are funny guys partly because they look funny. And the audience is able to go, yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. And I think, you know, you see that in politics too. Like a Mitt Romney, that guy's got everything going for him. It's hard to have empathy for a, a millionaire with a billionaire with a perfect family, you know? <laughs> right. But like, you know, Bill Clinton, every, you know, everybody's got a bitch wife and a crazy brother and like, you know, <laughs> I get, I get it. it. <laughs> well, that's perfect, Phil, because that that's a great segue into your Twitter account. Tell everybody where they can find you. You can find me at Phil Vangelakis, uh, yeah, at Phil Vangelakis, V-A-N-G-E-L-A-K. For musings about aliens, Clinton, and everything in between. It's a great- yeah. House music. It's a great it follow. Phil, I'm, uh, I'm trying to be respectful of your time. I know you've got one lined up in four minutes because I heard the notification go yeah. off, but thank you so much for taking a, month, a minute and, and just talking a little bit from a manager's perspective about creativity and about- what it takes to survive in a crazy industry in a fast-paced environment. We'll get into more aliens and AI next time. Uh, we'll do it again. Uh, but I appreciate you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Later, you brother. Bye. Thank you for tuning into the Creative Brief. I just wanted to say I'm so thankful for the support you've shown this podcast. Your feedback has been more than I could have hoped for, and I'm really excited to keep sharing these episodes. Be sure to tune in next week when my guest is the Matt D. Smith or MDS, as you may know him online. You won't want to miss it. And remember, if you want to support this podcast, the best thing that you can do is subscribe to this channel wherever you're listening. It helps me produce more episodes and spread the reach of this podcast, and it helps more people listen to it. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Brian Athey, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.